Welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbeam, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. So we're going to continue our time of worship together by examining the scriptures and Today we're going to continue our sermon series called More Conversations with Jesus. Last year, about this time, uh, we did a sermon series called Conversations with Jesus, where we asked you guys if you could sit down with Jesus at a coffee shop and you could ask him any question, what would you ask him? And you guys submitted dozens and dozens of questions, and Pastor Ben went through them all and he organized them to about 30 main questions that you guys had. We did that sermon series for seven or eight weeks last year, and obviously that's not enough time to answer 30 questions. So we're doing it again this year, uh, more conversations with Jesus to answer some more of those questions. If you do have a question that you would like us to talk about or like us to answer looking at scripture, um, go ahead and put that on the connection card and you can drop it in the offering plates as you leave. That'll help us get those questions and get them organized. I also wanted to let you guys know that our church does have a podcast that is released every Thursday. And what we're doing right now, running concurrently with this sermon series, is we are looking at other questions, questions that don't make it into the sermon series. We're discussing, Pastor Ben, myself, uh, Tim, along with other guests are discussing those questions. So I wanted to point you to that as well. That, those come out Thursday mornings. You can find out more information at nllutheranpodcast.com or on uh, the NL Lutheran website. With that out of the way, we're going to start our time together. Today, we're answering a, a pretty urgent question, a hard question, especially in 2020. And Pastor Ben seems to do this to me. Gary, you'll have to talk to him because this is what Pastor Ben seems to do. He'll hand me a challenging topic and then he'll go on vacation. He'll be like, see you later. Have fun. And so he did that again this week. He handed me a challenging question and him and Ashley are enjoying a well-deserved vacation. But today we're talking about the divisiveness and the division that we see in our world and especially in our country. So the question is, the idea is, if you sat down with Jesus, many of you, lots of you, would ask the question, in a world so divided, in a country so divided, how do we find peace? And how do we find unity? Because 2020 has been a hard year. It's been a hard year on all of us. And it feels like over the past uh, 12 years or so, maybe 16 years, things have kind of been building and building and building, and 2020 has been really hard. Um, it's kind of like, it feels like we're kind of in a repeat, like a cycle from the late 90s when we had all the, the same kind of violence and rioting and these types of things. We're back in this mode of very high tension. And it's very easy for us to get caught up in the divisiveness and feel hopeless. So today we're going to look at how do we maintain our peace as Christians? How do we maintain unity and how can we encourage unity in our country. And a way that we're going to enter into this conversation is through another metaphor. Danny and I didn't realize we were both doing sports metaphors, but I have another sports metaphor for you as we enter into this time together. I do not have control. Are we good? Okay. Fantastic. Thank you, Tim. Um, do any of you know who this man is? Off the top of your head. 
I'm telling you, if you were from Kansas, you would know right away. This is Dr. James Naismith. He's the inventor of basketball. Does that ring a bell? Now you kind of recognize who he is. James Naismith invented basketball um, about 1890s-ish, a little bit in there, maybe 1891, in Springfield, Massachusetts. And soon after that, he was hired for the University of Kansas. He came in, he did some physical education there, but he also brought the game of basketball to Kansas. I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, which is where the University of Kansas is, and he introduced the game there. And he, he worked there for about seven years, and in his time, he taught basketball and he encouraged basketball. And he actually established the University of Kansas men's basketball team, which is one of the most winningest college basketball teams in, in history. Uh, they're very, very good. And in his seven years playing or, or coaching at the University of Kansas, they played one time Kansas State University from Manhattan, Kansas, which is uh, the, the best college in Kansas is Kansas State University, by the way. Go Wildcats. But he uh, taught the people of Lawrence, Kansas, where I'm from, the surrounding areas and the entire state, he taught them basketball. And I'll tell you what, this man's photo, statues of him, they are plastered all over Lawrence. And Kansas is crazy about basketball. They are crazy about basketball. When I was in high school, our, bas our men's basketball team games, they were better attended than our football games were. And it might be because our football team was really bad while I was in high school, but everyone loves basketball. In fact, I would usually joke most of the people at the football games were there to watch the marching band. But everyone loves basketball and the entire state of Kansas is crazy about it. All, I mean, basketball is the thing in Kansas. And I love basketball as a spectator. Um, I think that it's my favorite sport to watch. And there's a motto in basketball and other sports say this as well, but I think it's true in basketball, maybe more than anywhere. And it goes like this. Maybe you've heard it. It goes like office, offense, excuse me, offense wins games, but defense wins championships. Have you heard that before? Offense wins games, but defense wins championships. There are lots of uh, sports that say this, but I think it's especially true in basketball. And that was repeated by the greatest of all time. Many, I know all of you guys know Michael Jordan. And in 1991, when the Bulls won the finals, he was cradling that trophy and a reporter asked him, how did you guys do it? And Michael Jordan said, defense wins championships. He repeated that motto. And then when you guys, when they did the three-peat in the mid-90s, after all three years, he was asked the same question, what helped you guys win? And he always said, defense wins championships. In basketball, this is the truth. Defense wins championships. Now, maybe basketball isn't your sport. Um, and there's actually an issue with this because we, as Americans, we love offense. We love people being aggressive and proactive and another sport shows this. Uh, if you guys aren't a basketball fan, maybe you're a football fan, right? And who won the Super Bowl this last year? I'm from Kansas City, so I need to hear it. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl, right? And the most popular player on the Chiefs is Patrick Mahomes. And everyone loves Patrick Mahomes, not only because he's genuinely a nice guy, but also the dude's a firecracker. It is so fun to watch him play football because he does these crazy passes, short arm passes behind the back. It's insane to watch him play football. And many of our favorite players in football are offensive players. Patrick Mahomes, Cam Newton, Peyton Manning, Odell Beckham Jr., they're all offensive players. We as Americans, 
We like offense. We like aggression. We like it when people make highlight plays. We enjoy watching that, and that sells tickets, and that makes for good television. The problem with this, though, so we may be tempted to think that uh, offense wins championships, right? Because certainly in the Chiefs, that's what happened this last year in the Super Bowl. Offense really did win the championship. So we're tempted to think that offense wins championships, but even in football, the most important player on the offense is not the quarterback. It's actually a group of five players, and that's the offensive linemen, right? They're the most important players, because it doesn't matter how good your quarterback is, if he's not protected by the linemen, he's not gonna throw good passes. And what do the linemen do? They defend, don't they? So even in football, it is defense, it is the defensive play style that actually wins championships. Without defense, you cannot win championships. Defense wins championships, but we are obsessed with offense. We are obsessed with winning. So let's get out of sports here for a little bit, and let's maybe take it into not a less, less lighthearted um, topic, uh, but we can see this in politics, right? How our nation is divided right now politically, it is all about winning. And what we like is we like it when people are aggressive, when people are trying to win. And even the people who are being elected into high offices, we can tell because there's a particular kind of person. They're strong-willed, they speak boldly. Even if we don't always agree with them, we want people to be aggressive. We want them to speak their mind and be true to who they are. We want people to be aggressive in their approach. And we love to win. And many of us back a certain political party or we back a certain political ideology and we are excited when that party or that ideology wins and we're sad when they lose. It's almost like sports to us where we buy into what people are doing and we want to win and we want to be the aggressor. This is how we're taught to operate in the world. And in fact, um, we see this very clearly um, this last week. After the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there was suddenly an open Supreme Court seat. And four years ago, we were in almost the exact same situation. A president was coming to the end of their term, a Supreme Court seat was open, and people, politicians on both sides of the political lines had very strong opinions about if that seat should be filled or if it shouldn't be filled, right? Do you remember that four years ago? And now this week, it seems like those opinions have switched. And now suddenly, the politicians decide they want to go the other way. Their opinions have changed now that whoever's in the White House is in the White House, which tells us something that our politicians are more interested in winning than necessarily being honest with what they believe. Okay? That's what that shows us. People's opinions have just switched. The exact opposite. Because it's all about winning. What we're going to hear today is that God has not called us to be aggressors. And the way that we've been trained to approach the world is actually quite destructive. But in fact, we've been called to defend We've been called to stand strong. There are going to be many of you, uh, maybe some of you, maybe not many. There are going to be some of you who are not pleased uh, at the end of this service, at the end of this sermon. Um, and I understand that's part of proclaiming the gospel, is that some people don't understand it. Both Jesus and Paul have been driven out of towns uh, because of their proclamation of the gospel. So if you are upset with me, that's okay. You can email Pastor Ben. Just please don't email me. But you can let him know that you're upset and that'll be all good. All right. So you can email him if I seem to make you mad uh, today. But what we're going to see today is that God has called us to defend, but
but not attack. This is what we see in our scripture. In Ephesians chapter six, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Paul here, this is at the end of the letter, and he has given this long passage, this long teaching of the Christian life about what husbands and wives should do, what parents should do, how to be good neighbors, how to be good employers. He has all these, this list of things that you can do um, as a Christian. And then finally, he ends with this passage. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. So right at the top of this teaching, Paul makes a point. He commands, he instructs the Christians to be strong, but to be strong in who? The Lord. He says, he does not say be strong in yourself, he does not say be strong in your opinions. He says be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Not your power, not your political party's power, not in your opinion's power, but in God's power. So he starts off with this distinction. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his power. He continues on. He says, for our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So he continues on this teaching, and this, I'm gonna just drop a little bit in here, do a little teaching real fast, um, just to make the point. This is a very, com this, is a, this is a big conversation, and we're just gonna dip our toe into it. Paul, um, of course, was Jewish, and so he had an Old Testament mindset and so when he says here that our battle is not against blood and flesh, but against the rulers, what we might think is, it's not against the person who like lives next to me, but it's against the person who's in power. But that's not quite what he's saying here, because in the Old Testament, we actually hear when God divides the nations at the Tower of Babel and he sends them all over the place, he actually assigns what we would call angels, spiritual beings, his kind of like his helpers in the spiritual realm, he actually assigned angels and spiritual beings to instruct and to guide the various nations. So I know that sounds weird. It's in there, it's in Deuteronomy, and it's in Genesis. Um, but that's, so all of the nations in our world have these spiritual forces behind them. But what we see in the Old Testament is that some of the spiritual beings uh, listen to God and, and are guided by God. Some of them rebel against him. And this is the, one of the weird parts, is that some are somewhere in between. There's not a very clear line with these kind of angelic beings that we might think, that we kind of think of today. In the Old Testament, there's not a very clear distinction between good and bad. Even the angels themselves are kind of somewhere in between sometimes. So the idea is, in Paul, as Paul's looking at the world, and as we should be looking at the world, he sees that it's not just the governments that are the problem, but there's actually spiritual forces behind the governments. And where governments are unfair and where governments are evil, those are actually spiritual forces and spiritual beings, demons, working through the government. And so Paul here says that our battle, our battle is not with flesh and blood. So if you lean a little bit more conservative, your battle is not with Joe Biden. If you lean a little bit more liberal, your battle is not with Donald Trump. As Christians, we are called to wage war in the spiritual realm, not necessarily in the physical realm. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be active politically. We can. We should vote. We should participate. We've been given a great gift in our democratic republic. We should be active in that. But our battle, the way that we fight, is not personal. 
It's not against people. It's against the spiritual forces that are behind these ideas that are pushing it along. Now I know some of us are friends on social media. Some of, I hear some of you guys talk, sometimes you talk to me. I know some of you have in your mind that your job is to make sure that XYZ doesn't get elected or reelected and you're very vocal about it. And that's what we're tackling here, is that that's not necessarily the right mindset to have. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against the people in the system, but it's in the spiritual realm. But oftentimes we take it as our duty to fight and to win in the physical realm, but God has never called us to do that. We'll continue on. Therefore, he says, take up the whole armor of God so you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. He reiterates what he talked about earlier. What does this language sound like to you? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? Not so that you can attack, but so that you can withstand. And you can withstand on that evil day. And after you've completed everything, you may stand firm. Because this is what we see when it comes to defense and offense. If you are on the offensive, if you are attacking, if you are the aggressor, you lack something and you want to take it from somebody else. If one nation attacks another nation for their land, the one nation doesn't have the land and they want the land, so they're going to take the land from the other nation. You see how that works? In football, if the Kansas City Chiefs get the ball on 25-yard line, Patrick Mahomes has the ball, they have 75 yards in front of them that they don't have, and they have to steal and take away from the defense. If you are on the defensive, you have something that your enemy wants. You have something that your enemy is trying to get. Does that make sense? And so as Christians, even at the beginning of this letter in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that Christians have every spiritual blessing in the heavens. We are told in Peter that we have been given everything necessary for life and godliness. We're told in scripture that Christians have eternal life, that we have victory over sin, that we have victory in eternity. And so my question is, my confusion is, why do Christians seem like they need to be the aggressor so much? We already have everything. There's nothing we lack in Jesus Christ. So I'm confused why we always feel like we need to fight, but we need to be on the defensive because we're the ones who have everything and everyone else is trying to take it from us. That's what the enemy's trying to do. He has come to kill, steal, and destroy. We have something he wants. We have eternal life. We have peace. We have patience. We have understanding. And others don't. And they're trying to take it from us. Okay. Tim, I know, I know that we're Lutheran. I know that we're Lutheran here. And I get, I'm, I'm from a different background. So if you need to talk back a little bit, if you need to say amen, you can. You're open to do that. I just don't understand it. We're the ones with everything. It doesn't matter who's in the White House because we have eternal life. We have peace. It doesn't matter if there's a D or an R there. We're the ones who have peace, not them. We're not on the offense. We're on the defense. 
And that's what Paul talks about as he continues into talking about and breaking down the armor of God. And here they are listed. We're just going to bust right through these. First of all, we have the belt of truth. Um, and it's interesting, in a Roman, you know, Paul, we, we're pretty sure, is thinking about Roman armor. So we can kind of look at Roman armor and understand what he's talking about. And he actually outlines all the different elements that a Roman soldier would have. And the first thing that he lists is the belt of truth. And I think it's interesting, uh, so many of us, uh, maybe you've noticed this too. Uh, I've definitely noticed this. I've heard people do this. Um, but when they talk about truth, sometimes people will use truth as a reason to be mean to other people. Have you noticed that? They'll say something kind of rude, and when they get called out on it, they'll say, well, it's true, right? Have you heard that? I've heard that. So we kind of treat truth as a sword that we can cut other people down with, but Paul here actually says truth is a belt. And the interesting thing about this belt is that this belt isn't even armored. It's just a leather strap that goes right around the belly. But what the belt does, what the belt of truth does, is it actually holds, there were these like loops, and it would hold the breastplate on. So if you didn't have your belt, your breastplate would be moving around and you wouldn't be able to fight very well. So here Paul's saying, the belt is truth, and then we put on the breastplate of righteousness, of uprightness, which Jesus says is loving God and loving people, that sets then on the truth. But the truth isn't necessarily how we defend ourselves. Having the truth gives us the tool, but it's not necessarily licensed to be mean. It's not necessarily licensed to attack. We put on the belt of truth and our uprightness, our love for God and our love for other people hang on that belt. And then we're given the shoes of, of, of the proclamation of the gospel. And Roman soldiers, they would have these kind of strappy sandals, but the sandals would have spikes on the bottom. They're not shoes like we would wear, but they're more like cleats. And they would have these spikes, a bunch of little spikes on them. And so when they went into battle, when the enemy was coming at them, they would put their feet on the ground, and when they got attacked, this is what they would do. They would weeble, and they would wobble, but they wouldn't fall down. And they wouldn't have to take a step back. They would be able to stand firm on the ground because the spikes of their shoes were keeping them there. That no matter what the enemy did, they were able to, they may move a little bit, but they're not going to lose any ground. And they're not going to fall over. That's what this preparation of the gospel is. Being prepared to proclaim the gospel of peace keeps us rooted tightly into the ground so we will not miss a step. We will not lose an inch of ground. And then we have the shield of faith. And the shield is the most important equipment that a soldier would carry. It would cover about from the shoulders to the knees, and it was the first line of defense for the soldier. If there were enemies who were shooting arrows or enemies coming in with a sword, they would block with the shield, and we're told this is the shield of faith, that it's the trust in God that actually protects us, is our first line of defense against the enemy, against the devil and his schemes. And then we have the helmet of salvation. And the helmet is vitally important because if you get hit in the head, chances are pretty good you'll die. If you get hit in the head with a sword. And another way you can think about this is with motorcycles or bicycles. If a bicyclist or a motorcyclist is, is, is riding with a helmet on, if they get in a crash, the fatality rate drops almost to zero. Unless it's really very serious. That a helmet actually saves your life in crashes like that. And it's the same way with a soldier. You put on the helmet, and here Paul says it's the helmet of salvation. It's actually what saves us. 
that our eternal life is guarding us, that even if we suffer defeat now in this world, we know that we have eternity. We know that we have forever with God. And then finally, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the only thing that's listed that is a weapon for offense. And it's interesting here that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. It's not even really our thing. It's God's Word, not our Word, not our opinion. It's God's Word. And God wields his word however he wants to. We're told that in scripture, that he makes the word effective as he leads. So the Christian, our one way that we can attack is with scripture, with the word of God. And even then, God says sometimes it's effective, sometimes it's not, and that's up to God and not us. You notice here, this is a much different way of living that we are on the defensive. We have all the equipment we need to defend ourselves against the enemy. But here's what I see when I look out into our world. I don't see our neighbors, or even necessarily other Christians, I don't see them walking this way. I don't see them living this way with this armor on. In fact, their armor looks a lot different. Our world has the armor where the belt is their opinion. And on their opinion, whatever, it could be political opinion or religious opinion, on their opinion then rests the breastplate of moral superiority. Where they say that side is evil because they vote for this or they do that or they believe this thing. So on your opinion then rests your moral superiority. And their shoes aren't, aren't ready to proclaim the gospel, but they're actually running shoes. So they can run headlong into battle every chance they get, every little, little mistake that somebody makes. They're jumping on it, and they're pointing it out, and they're, they're ridiculing each other. And we don't have, they don't have the shield of faith, but instead they have this wicker basket that is their political party's leader. And they say, as long as this person is in office, they'll protect us. As long as this person's on the Supreme Court, they'll protect us. And instead of wearing the helmet, the helmet of salvation, they put on a baseball cap with their political logo or their political party there on the front. And instead of the sword of the spirit, they have the sword of harsh words and of meanness. And they run headlong into battle. And when everybody is dressed like that, with these swords of the, their own words, and they run into battle, what happens? Everyone dies. If you're not wearing armor but everyone has a sword, everybody dies. Everybody gets cut. That's how our world operates. And it's brutal. It's brutal. Maybe some of you are living in that world. Maybe some of you feel like you need to, you need to defend your political party or defend your political ideals at every step. Maybe you feel like you need to attack the other side so that you can make sure they don't win. You're trying to, to tell everyone that they need to vote a certain way or, or believe a certain way. That's not a great way to live, folks. That's not enjoyable. That isn't peaceful. That drains us. It drains us of our morality and it drains us of our joy. And we're scrambling and everyone, everyone's dying. The way that Christians are called to, to live is by defense, rooted firmly in the gospel and defending ourselves against the devil's attacks. So Christians respond, um, when they are given anger, they respond with peace. When they are given violence, they respond with grace. We are given righteousness. We are given salvation. We are given faith. 
we are given the gospel, which is the reconciliation of God to man. Those are the things that we're given. We're not given weapons of our words or we're not given hate or, or deviousness. We're given truth. We're given peace. To me, that sounds like a better way to live. I don't know about you guys. So the question today is this. If you pose the question, how, how in a world so divided can we uh, stay united? Can we have peace? And my question right back to you would be, well, how are you fighting? Are you fighting like the world fights? Are you scrambling, trying to win the war of words? Are you scrambling, trying to make sure your political team gets what they want and gets the victory? Or are you fighting God's way? Are you letting him do the fighting? And are you standing firm in the truth that he's given us? There are two ways. One leads to death and one leads to life. One leads to division and one leads to peace. I know which way seems more attractive to me. And God is inviting us into that way of peace. And so we get to choose which way we're gonna go, led by the Holy Spirit into either death or life, into division or into peace.